you have your copy of the Word of God, I want to invite you to open up to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. Our text will be chapter 19, beginning in verse 28 this morning. And we'll be going through verse 44 as we continue. <clears throat> uh, we continue to look at the passion of Christ and just kind of trace his steps uh, leading up to uh, Easter Sunday, next Sunday, and um, this text is the text that's known as uh, Palm Sunday or tri- the triumphal entry. And so uh, as we approach this passage this morning, we see the passion of Christ. And so the title of the message is The Passion of Christ Entering Jerusalem and Embracing His Destiny. Uh, speaking of Christ and His ministry, this is where He is heading He has been heading to Jerusalem. And so if you found your place in chapter 19, verse 28, say amen. And follow along as I read. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, or so those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples, but Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Let us pray. Father, as we... Approach your word this morning. I pray that you would open our eyes to see the wonderful truth of your word. I pray, God, that you would captivate our minds and captivate our lives. And Father, I pray that you would give us a passion about living for you as much as Christ's passion exhibits his his desire to die for the sake of our sin, to save our soul. I pray, God, that you would... Give us a hunger and a passion for your word. And Lord, I pray that you would transform our lives this morning. That as we sit under and hear your word, that you would teach us and that you would transform us, Lord. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would have freedom in the hearts and the minds of each of us here. And that you would be free to work in our midst as you see fit, Father. 
I pray, Father, that you would anoint your people this morning, anoint our ears that we may hear and our minds that we may understand so that your word, Father, would transform us, would change us, would exhort us and, 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 and fill us so that we would live for you and for your glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. In this passage, we see Christ's ministry balanced between humility and sovereignty and between his compassion and his justice. We see these characteristics of his kingship laid out in this passage, even as he approaches Jerusalem. And my prayer, church, for us is that we will be gripped with a passion for Christ that shakes us from any complacency that might be present in our lives, even this morning. That as we see the passion of Christ laid out in this passage, it would cause us to look at ourselves differently. It would cause us to think about His mission in and through us differently. And that we too would have the passion of Christ In this passage, Luke begins, or Luke narrates for us, really the end of the Jerusalem journey. And some say, well, this is the end of the Jerusalem journey. And others say it's the beginning of the passion narrative. And then some say, well, it's both. It's the end and it's the beginning. It's the end of his drawing near to Jerusalem. He's arriving. This begins the passion narratives in the Gospel of Luke where Christ begins looking and speaking about his passion, or continues looking forward and speaking of his passion. But Luke has been highlighting a theme that's known throughout from chapter 9 until chapter 19. He's been highlighting this theme that's known as the Jerusalem journey. And in these chapters from 9 through 19, there's been six different occasions where Luke has been poignant and and, and has made it a point to tell us that Jesus is now turning his face toward Jerusalem. In Luke 9.51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. In Luke 13.22, Luke shows us he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. In chapter 17, verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. In chapter 18, verse 31, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. In chapter 19, verse 11, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell the parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And then here in verse 28, when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. You see, in this passage, we see a portrait of Christ's kingship. This humility and sovereignty and and his compassion and yet his justness. And so as we look into verses 28 through 40, the first thing I want us to see this morning is I want us to see Jesus Christ, the humble yet sovereign king. I want us to notice this about his character, that he balances humility and sovereignty in a very tremendous way. The humble yet sovereign king. So first, let us consider his humility in verse 28. After he had said these things, as he was going up to Jerusalem, verse 29 records for us that when he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that's called Olivet, he 
begins to send out his disciples. Luke gives us more geographical uh, data in this passage, if you will, than, than all the other gospel accounts. Luke tells us of the stages along the journey that he's going through Bethphage, and Bethphage means the house of unripe figs. One commentator comments that there's an irony here that there's a special type of fig that grows in Bethphage, which never appears to be ripe. And he draws this correlation between Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, where, uh, where Jesus tells the parable of the fig tree. He began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit, and on it he did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding it. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, I'll cut it down. He seems to be drawing a correlation here, a parable of the fig tree and and the nation of Israel that's certainly possible. But as he moves through Bethphage, he also goes to and passes through Bethany. And Bethany is located near Bethphage and is approximately one and a half miles east of Jerusalem. And it sits some 2,660 feet uh, above sea level at its elevation. And as one looks out across, they look across the Kidron Valley and they see Jerusalem at about 2,500 feet above sea level. And as they look across, they can see the city, the capital. And I think Luke is pointing this out to show us and to maybe foreshadow Jesus' descent from Bethphage into the valley and then His ascent back up into Jerusalem to show us what's coming on the road for Christ. Metaphorically, this descent down the mountain through the valley and then the ascent up to Jerusalem to, to foreshadow and to speak of His kingly nature and that which is coming, that which will soon happen as He approaches the cross. And so in verse 29, Jesus dispatches these two disciples and and they go to look for or to secure the the donkey, the colt that he speaks about. And so in verses 29 through 35, we really have something that's kind of different than we would expect for a king. You would not expect, I would not expect, we wouldn't expect that a king would come riding in on on a donkey, on a colt, on one that has never been sat or ridden so he tells them in verse 29 go and find in verse 30 go and find this colt here's where it's going to be tied one might expect that a king would come riding in on a on a horse or a stallion one would expect that a king this was common for the day that kings would enter into cities in processions and they would be riding and mounted on a horse and it shows that they are a great warrior king a great king who is conquered it shows their strength but instead Jesus comes in riding on a colt a donkey a donkey was used for carrying heavy loads and doing burdensome work a donkey was 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 known as a beast of burden but the stallion the stallion would be the choice of a king I think comparatively what we need to see in this contrast between what a 
stately regal king would choose for a stallion and what Jesus himself chooses for a colt is instead of this beast of brilliance, Christ chooses the beast of burden. And it speaks as much about Christ's humility as it does about the kingdom of God. Jesus is unlike any earthly king and his kingdom is not like any earthly kingdom. It is completely different. And the picture that Luke paints for us is that this humble king enters on a humble colt carrying the weight of the world's sin on his back. Get the picture. The beast of burden carrying the burden of sin who is, which is carried by Christ himself as he descends through the valley and ascends to Jerusalem and he sets his face to look at the cross. Luke is showing us this foreshadowing of the passion of Christ. He has set his face there. This is the true portrait of humility. Do you see the humility in Christ the King? He would not demand or command a horse be brought, yet a lowly colt. The offspring of a donkey, a lowly colt. This true portrait of humility is captured by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8, where he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant that you and I, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's where he is heading. That's what awaits him in Jerusalem. Jesus' entry on a colt, it fulfills Old Testament prophecy. The prophet spoke of this. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 speaks of this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, what we need to understand and what Luke is showing us that the kingdom of God is different than any earthly kingdom. The kingdom of God is not about worldly power or prestige. It's not about worldly fame or accolades. It's about humility and it's about service. It's about laying down one's life for the one who laid down his own life as a ransom for many kingdom of God is about Jesus Christ serving and it's about us following Christ and serving. It's about us laying down our lives for the one who has laid down his life. That is Christ and following him. But not only should we consider his humility this morning, we must also consider his sovereignty We must consider his sovereignty, Jesus Christ, the humble yet sovereign king. And in verses 28 through 40, we see his sovereignty played out. Luke is careful to show us that Jesus controls all of the circumstances surrounding his heading to Jerusalem. Luke is careful to show us that Jesus is embracing his destiny. In verse 29, when he approached Bethpage and Bethany, 
he sent two of his disciples. He dispatches the disciples. And then in verse 30, it tells us the location of the cult that he sends them to get. Not only does he tell us the location, he tells us the condition of the cult. He says it'll be tied up there in verse 30. And no one has ever sat on it, untied and bring it here. And then in verse 31, if anyone asks you what to say, here's what you say. The Lord has need of it. Tell them that. Verses 32 through 34 record for us that the scene unfolds just as Jesus says it would. His disciples go. They obediently follow his commands. They go. They find the colt. They take the colt. And listen, they bring it back to Jesus. And when they bring it back to Jesus, it's as if Luke is recording for us. They know exactly what to do. They throw their coats. They take their coats off. This is a tremendous scene. Children, on the worship guide that you have that you got this morning, if you picked one up, there's an opportunity for you to draw this scene out as as you see it happening. You can draw a picture of what it's like, what you think it would look like. But imagine... Imagine this morning what it would look like on that day. As Jesus is approaching the descent, they they bring the colt to him. They take off their coats, their outer cloaks, and they lay it on the colt in order to form a saddle for Christ. Not so kingly, but it certainly is. And then the other disciples begin taking off their outer cloaks as well and laying it on the ground in front of the colt. You know how this happens so that so that it he can walk on it. They're laying out the red carpet for Christ the Messiah as he is approaching Jerusalem. And Luke doesn't record the detail for us, but Matthew and Mark certainly do, that they begin waving palm branches, and this is a sign. Waving palm branches is a sign of, of worshiping, or, or not of worshiping necessarily, but of, uh, of, of enjoying and seeing and accepting the King who is coming in. And so they begin celebrating the coming of Messiah. They're lining the roads on this day. And it says in verse 37 that they were shouting. As soon as he was approaching, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God, rejoicing or praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Perhaps there was just a flood that comes back of all these miracles and the power that they have witnessed and seen as Christ has has walked and He has been among His people and He has touched people and healed them and He has spoken and cast out demons and He has put His hands up and said, Be still to the water. In fact, Luke has recorded for us so many places throughout his gospel of the healing and the authority and the power of Christ over sickness and even over sin, even over creation. In chapter 5, Jesus heals the leper and He forgives the sins of the paralyzed man that was lowered through the roof. And then when people grumbled that He was able to forgive sins, He said, so that you will know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I tell you, get up and walk. And the man gets up and he walks. In chapter 7, He spoke a word and healed the the centurion's servant just by speaking the word. He raised the son of the widow of Nain back from the dead. In chapter 8, He calms the sea, showing that even creation obeys Him. He cast out demons who immediately recognized and submitted Submitted to his authority, he heals the woman with a 12-year hemorrhage just by her touching the hem of his garment. He raises Jairus' daughter from 
the dead. In chapter 9, he takes five loaves and two fish, and he feeds 5,000 people. In chapter 13, he delivers the woman from bondage to Satan, and he cures her illness. In chapter 17, he heals ten lepers and removes their leprosy. And there were many other miracles the people would have seen Christ doing. The scene is a tremendous one. All of this culminates at one point. For those who are following Christ, for the crowd of disciples there, it culminates and they begin to praise God. This is the moment. This is the moment where Christ is entering and He is embracing His passion, His destiny. And they begin shouting in verse 38, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. This is attributing kingship, Davidic kingship, to Christ. And the Pharisees knew this. And so Psalm 118.26 says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So they were cutting down palm branches and they were waving them. They were laying their coats on the road in front of the colt as Jesus makes his kingly procession. And they were shouting, Hosanna. They were shouting, Blessed be the name of the Lord. They were shouting, This is our King. And the Pharisees knew it. And they knew it. They were shouting, this is our king. And the disciples, by echoing the words of the psalm, declare that Jesus is the promised king who comes with the authority of God himself. We must take note of that. We know this, that Jesus is God Himself, and that He comes with the authority of God Himself. They've seen it in action, and they were excited, and they were praising Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, because He has arrived. Let me just say, church, is this what enters our mind as we begin praising our Lord? As we gather on Sunday mornings corporately to worship our God, Is this the view of Christ that we have, the resurrected Savior, the one who has defeated sin and death? Do we have that view of our Lord when we come in here and we lift our voices and sing His praise? Are we like the people lining the side of the road shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the name of the Lord, blessed is the one who comes from God Himself with the authority and the power of God Himself? Do you know the authority and the power of Christ in your life? Do you experience the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit daily to deliver us from sin? To strengthen us to abide in Him? Do we know that power, that authority that comes from God Himself? I fear that we get more excited over sports events or the hobbies that we do then we get overcoming and worshiping the resurrected Lord and Savior who has defeated sin and death and died so that He might redeem our souls. We have been given life that outlasts any momentary pleasure, any momentary time of of exuberance. We have been given eternal life that goes beyond anything this world can offer. We, as the church, must worship the resurrected Lord. And church, we need to be excited about worshiping God. I understand there are times for lamenting. 
I understand there are times for being broken before the Lord, and I am not saying that, there, that we, we should not be broken before God, but church, when we come together as the people of God, we ought to be excited about gathering with His people to worship Him. You know there are places in this world, and I know you do, where, where they cannot gather openly and freely to worship God. May our freedom in Christ and freedom in this country not suppress our freedom in worshiping Him. Let us be free to worship the Lord Jesus. Let us forget about ourselves and worship His name. Let us praise Him because He is worthy. There were some who couldn't praise the Lord Jesus that day. They were the Pharisees. They always get the bad rap. But they weren't worshiping Him. They weren't praising Him. In verse 39 it tells us, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But I want you to notice how the humble Lord replies in sovereign power. Look in verse 40 what Jesus says. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Creation itself recognizes and is ready to cry out that Jesus is the Messiah. And if the people don't declare it, he says, the stones will. And this is a stinging indictment against the religious leaders that those who live can't see what creation, even though it doesn't live, sees. Even lifeless creation knows that Jesus, the Messiah, has come. And yet they cannot see it. And church, I just want to challenge us this morning that we would not be a people that would let the stones cry out in our place. That we would be a people who worship God, who praise God, who sing and shout joyfully before the Lord. That we would praise Him from the depths of our soul for the wonderful work that He has done in saving us. In His sovereignty, He knew that He would be spit on and beat He knew that he'd be mocked. He knew that he'd be abandoned by his friends. He knew that he would be killed. And in his sovereignty, he knew the wicked hearts of the religious leaders. In his sovereignty, he knew what awaited him in Jerusalem. But hear this out. In his humility, he embraced his destiny, the passion of Christ. The passion of Christ to die for the sins of man so that he would satisfy God's just wrath against sin by making atonement with his own life. I ask you this morning, do you know the Savior King? Do you know this Savior? Is he your Savior King? Not only is Jesus the humble yet sovereign king, I want us to see secondly this next portrait that Jesus Christ is the compassionate yet just king. He is the compassionate yet just king. We see this in verses 41 through 44. It's a tender moment. We only have two places in scripture where Jesus weeps. This is one of them. So first I want us to consider his compassion in verses 41 and 42. The passion of Christ meets the compassion of Christ. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Saying, if you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. 
the one who is sovereign in knowledge and is controlling all things. He's sovereign in knowledge and over all, and he approaches Jerusalem and he weeps. We see the great contrast of the one who combines sovereign knowledge and power with tears of compassion and mercy. He doesn't weep because of what awaits him in Jerusalem and the fate that will soon befall him. He doesn't weep because he's looking at the cross. He weeps because his heart breaks over Jerusalem because they missed it. He says that in verse 44, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. It breaks over the blindness and the complacency of his people. This is reminiscent of what Christ has already said in Luke 13, 34 and another time where he looks out and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers a brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you that you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and that's not fulfilled here in this passage. But it will be fulfilled one day where, as Romans tells us and we'll study in Sunday school, where Israel will once again at a point in the future, turn back to Christ. But here, Jesus weeps over the hardness of the cold, fallow ground of their hearts. He weeps over their being so steeped in tradition and their own ways that they miss the true identity of Christ as Messiah. In Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 3, the Lord says to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. In Hosea 10.12, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and reign in righteousness upon you. We consider the Lord of compassion, one who would weep over the hardness of heart of his people. And perhaps we ought to consider that compassion as we look at others, ask God to give us His eyes to see others who are lost in sin, others who are hardened in their heart. Perhaps it ought to cause us to even reflect in our own life and even to weep over our own condition before Him that maybe we ourselves are a people with a hardened heart who have not followed Him. But not only do we see his compassion, we must consider his justice or his justness. We consider his justness in verses 43 and 44. The compassion of Christ is met by the justice of Christ. And in verse 43, he tells them, the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade around you and they'll surround you and they'll hem you in on every side and then they're going to come and they're going to level the ground. They'll Level everything, you and your children within you. They won't leave one stone upon another. This is the result of their missing the Lord Jesus Christ. They're missing His coming. Jerusalem will soon realize that it cost to reject Jesus the Messiah. In AD 70, the temple fell. Jerusalem was ransacked and destroyed, overrun. 
in AD 70, this comes true. And Jerusalem realizes, or will realize, that it costs to reject Jesus. There's a penalty for those who reject the Lord. Even though He's compassionate toward us and He would weep over His people, there is a penalty for those who reject Him. There comes a time when a person's rejection of Christ is fatal and eternally condemning. And as we consider Christ, our humble Messiah, the sovereign King of the universe, uh, we see one who has great compassion for his people, such compassion that he weeps over them. But in the end, we must realize that his compassion will give way to his divine justice and he will reject those who reject him. This is the truth of the gospel. There's no way around it. Jesus comes as Messiah wanting His people to follow Him, wanting His people to get it, to see it. Yet they reject Him. And there is a penalty. It's carried out very with reality in verse 44. We see it happen in A.D. 70. Now I ask us this morning, like Jesus, when was the last time that we wept over the hardness of the hearts of people who reject Him. The personal question I have to ask myself is, when was the last time I wept with compassion for sinners who without Christ will die in bondage to sin and spend an eternity apart from Christ, will spend an eternity in hell and torture and torment? When was the last time, believer, that you wept over the law, over over a lost friend who, who God has placed in your life, praying for his or her salvation. Maybe we've never done that before. But I want to challenge you this morning to seek the Lord to give you a heart like his, to give you eyes to see like he sees people, to give you a heart to love like he loves people. Because the reality is that, beloved, unless you and I are telling others of the hope of salvation in Christ, and unless you and I are ministering to others for the sake of the gospel, then we too are missing it. We're missing the whole point of why Christ came. And one of the ways, very practically, that we have been challenging or that we are challenging our people, us as a congregation together, that we are challenging us to, to be involved and to minister the gospel in the midst of the community is through our home groups. That we, as, as God's people, would gather together not just for soul care for one another, to encourage one another and to hold one another accountable, but also to do ministry in this city, to reach this city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do this by gathering together with, with a group and, and, and encouraging one another, but then also going out into our community, going out and sharing the gospel, going out and, and engaging people in their contexts. It's part of what we as home groups want to do and accomplish that we would take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations and begin here in this city. You know, Crosspoint is very unique. You probably know this better than me, but just to see how we as a people are scattered all across this city. We are poised to make an impact for the kingdom of God all across this city. 
from Prairieville and Gonzales to Mid-City, to here in East Baton Rouge, to Mid-City, to downtown, uh, all the way out to um, Denham Springs. Uh, we, We were just scattered. And church, as we gather Together on, on Wednesday nights, midweek, we talk about how we can encourage one another from, from the message, but also challenge one another. And then how are we to take that and to transform the lives of people? We take the gospel and we live the gospel and we encourage one another with the gospel and we proclaim the gospel and we put hands and feet to the gospel. And so I close this morning by asking you this. What's so triumphant about this triumphal entry? What's so triumphant about Christ going into a city to experience humiliation and derision? What's so triumphant about the crucifixion on the cross? Here's what's so triumphant. He doesn't remain in the grave. He comes out of the tomb. He doesn't remain dead. He is alive. This is what is so triumphant about the triumphal entry. It's completely different than any worldly expectation. But this is the kingdom of God on earth. Christ would walk out of the tomb and he would not remain. He would deliver his people from sin and death and bondage to sin and death. And here's the thing. He freely and compassionately gives eternal life to all those who believe in him by faith. This is what's so triumphant. Christ is the risen king. We worship him because he is risen. He is Lord of all. And so this morning, the portrait we see is Jesus Christ, the humble yet sovereign king, and he balances it so well like only God could. Jesus Christ, the compassionate yet just king, and he balances it so well as only Christ could. He weeps for his people, but he will carry out justice. Let me ask you this morning, do you know Jesus Christ? Have you trusted him as savior? Has your life been surrendered to him as sovereign over all the earth? As sovereign over your life? Have you repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ? If you haven't done that this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. You can pray and ask God for forgiveness. If he's leading you this morning, don't delay. Submit to him. Don't deny what the work of God through the Holy Spirit is doing in your life this morning. Maybe there's some other way that God is challenging you. Maybe there's a, something that He's placed on your mind that you need to walk in obedience in. I, I don't know. Maybe there's a time that you just want to come this morning and kneel down on these steps and say, God, I'm making this commitment to you. Whatever it is, I want to charge you and challenge you not to leave this place this morning without going to the Lord in prayer and making that commitment before Him, confessing before Him your need for Him. We need Jesus. Asking Him to give us His eyes, give us His heart. Lead us. Let us pray. Father, most gracious Father, thank You for the portrait that we see of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is humble yet sovereign,
He is compassionate yet just. God, give us eyes and a heart to see people as you see them. Give us a heart, Father, to weep over our own sin, to weep over the complacency and the hardness of a people who would reject you. Oh, Father, we live in a a nation and a place where people reject you. The thought of following you and walking with you is so foreign to so many in the culture in which we live. Help us to be heralds of your righteousness. Help us, Father, strengthen us to walk with you and to cry out to you on behalf of all those that you've placed in our lives that don't know you. Help us, Father, to have a compassion as you do. Oh, Lord Jesus, to have the passion that you have. That we might worship you and proclaim your goodness. That we might shout to you, rejoicing in who you are. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.